I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. Shannon Watts, an East Bay mom, is one of the most well-known gun control advocates in the country, and probably the person the National Rifle Association despises the most. She founded Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. During the COVID-19 pandemic, domestic violence is up, suicides are up, and unintended gun deaths are up too. But there is one silver lining. She's confident of big election wins in November. Shannon Watts, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're one of the most well-known gun control advocates in the country, and I wondered if you can describe what it's been like to continue your advocacy during the COVID-19 pandemic when everybody else's attention is focused somewhere else, how you keep, you know, injecting this into the conversation. Yeah, you know, we um, started as a Facebook page and we have invested in technologies along the way, really sophisticated technologies that enable our activists not only to to do this work uh, culturally, legislatively, electorally, but also to connect as a community. So we were able to take that technology and immediately pivot to start doing this work online. Um, For example, in California, we were supposed to have one of our advocacy days. We have one in every state every year. And it was just as the COVID crisis hit. At the last minute, we pivoted to doing our first ever virtual advocacy day. And we had about 800 in-person RSVPs. And what was interesting was that many more people actually participated. And the learning there for, for me has been that this technology makes us so much more equitable and inclusive. Um, It's not easy to get from San Diego to Sacramento, especially if you're working or you can't afford it, but it is easy to zoom in for a half hour during a lunch break. And so I think that, that this way of doing things is going to be part of our DNA going forward. I really don't think we'll go back to just doing kind of offline, in person activities. One of the saddest, in a way it's good, but in a way it's really sad, um, things that I've seen lately is that there haven't been school shootings, but only because schools are closed. And it just strikes me as a sad commentary that kids literally have to stay home from school to avoid, you know, that kind of horrible outcome. Um, how have you felt about that kind of weird data point? Yeah, it, it is a weird data point that we actually have to, in America, have a, a pandemic in order to not have school shootings. It's really tragic. Um, There was a historic spike in gun sales in March and April. And I am very worried about the implications of that as kids get ready to go back to school in the fall. We know that even before this crisis, 4.6 million American kids lived in homes with unsecured guns. So many of those gun buyers in the last couple of months are first-time gun buyers. Depending on where they live, they may not have to have training. They may not know how to securely store a firearm. And we know most school shooters have are, are students who have easy access to guns inside their homes. And so I'm very concerned about the implications of that historic spike in gun sales going into the new school year. And I I didn't know until today that there was, you know, panic buying of guns when I was researching, you know, this issue to prepare questions for you. I, of course, knew about people panic buying toilet paper and pasta (laughs) and rice, but I hadn't heard about that. Why do you think people are panic buying guns? Uh, Well, we know why. Uh, The NRA has for years uh, exploited tragedy in order to juice gun sales. We've seen it. uh, We've seen them do it 
as far back as the Katrina crisis. Um, they certainly did it again after the hurricane in Houston recently, where uh, not only did they work to sell guns, but they actually were successful in changing state law after that hurricane to say, you don't necessarily need a permit to carry a gun right after a natural disaster. So this is their MO. Um, and it has been for a long time. And the NRA wants us to believe we need guns to protect ourselves. And that includes things like looters. And so when there's a, a natural disaster, that's their first instinct is to try to get gun sales to go up. And it sounds like other shootings are on the rise, um, including domestic violence incidents, suicides, and accidental in-home shootings because everybody's home stuck together. Um, can you tell me about that and, and why you're seeing some of these kinds of gun incidents rise? Well, first of all, women are isolated with their, their abusers who may have easy access to guns. Um, we know globally there's about a 20% increase in domestic violence. And so in America, you know, when you add guns to that mix, it's even more deadly. And so we're, we're watching the, the research and the data come in, but certainly we expect that to increase. Um, in terms of unintentional shootings, you know, millions, tens of millions of kids are unexpectedly at home. And uh, they may have, again, easy access to unsecured weapons. And then in terms of gun suicide, uh, we know that people are, are struggling with isolation and concerns about their economic future. And so, again, having easy access to guns uh, makes suicide even more fatal in America. Um, the, the reverberations of this spike in gun sales will be with us for months and years long after the coronavirus crisis is over. Wow. Just more happy news we needed right now. Huh? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the presidential election in November? Of course, gun control is a major issue for you, and the two candidates have very different platforms. Um, can oh, you speak yeah. to that and, and how you're feeling about what's likely to happen? I am feeling very optimistic about the 2020 elections. I think it's the, the one light at the end of the tunnel right now which is that in less than six months, we'll be able to elect a gun sense president, flip the Senate, which we truly believe we can do, hold the House, continue to change the makeup of state legislatures. Um, through every town, we've committed to spending $60 million this year. And so when you combine that financial strength with our 6 million supporters and our army of, of Moms Demand Action and Students Demand Action volunteers, I think you know, we're unstoppable. And we will be one of the most powerful forces booting Donald Trump out of the White House. How will you feel if you do see on the news that night that he has been booted? <laughs> uh, I will certainly be celebrating. It will be a much different feeling than I had when I was sitting in the Javits Center uh, in November of 2016, which was sort of shock uh, and then um, incredible uh, depression. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I, you know, I really do think that's what will happen election night. And it will be so wonderful to finally be playing offense at a federal level. And I understand you've done some virtual sessions with all of the women rumored to be in the running as vice presidential picks for Joe Biden. What was that like? Yeah, we've been having these conversations uh, using the hashtag demanding women, which I love. I love and that. Yeah, you know, and they are. They're they're all so incredibly thoughtful and have have just really put time and effort into this issue and they they're prioritizing it, which you know is a seismic shift in American politics that that pretty much every candidate um is is competing to see who can be the best on this issue, at least on the Democratic side. 
And uh, it has been truly an honor, but also very enlightening to have these conversations. And who have you had? And did you have a favorite? Uh, I, I, I love them all equally. Uh, <laughs> you know, everyone from Elizabeth Warren to Kamala Harris, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Stacey Abrams, uh, Val Demings, uh, the, the governor of um, New Mexico, uh, Governor Lujan Grisham. And uh, we'll also be talking to Susan Rice. And so, so far that's been the lineup. And really, they're just all such spectacular leaders. And, and as a woman, it's, it's really wonderful to see so many smart women with a seat at the table. Right. So it sounds like you don't think you can go wrong. I don't. Good. Um, and I understand that you've turned to a lot of college students to help um, with voter registration, and they're doing that work virtually. Um, how is that working? Can you describe that program? Yeah. So, you know, we have Students Demand Action, which has become the largest youth-led gun violence prevention movement in the country. And suddenly all of these students in high school and college are unexpectedly at home with time on their hands. And I'm so impressed that they're, they're turning that time into activism. Um, we invested about $1.5 million in Students Demand Action to register 100,000 new voters. And they're doing this through relational organizing. So they have a, a tool called Hustle that they can use to reach out to their peers and say, hey, are you registered to vote? If not, you know, here's how you do that. Um, and you know, we've seen an 80% increase in student leader engagement just since social distancing began. Um, they've launched field offices, virtual field offices in 37 states and Washington, D.C. So, you know, I, I feel um, really confident that uh, we are, we have a new generation of activists who are going to get this over the finish line and protect the wins that we made. Why is gun control such a big issue for college age students, would you say? You know, some people refer to them as uh, the lockdown generation. Mm. Um, they have been practicing these uh, active shooter drills since they started, many of them preschool, right? Essentially rehearsing their deaths in the bathroom of their classroom. And they're angry and they should be. Um, they, they have been let down by their elected officials and they know that. They know that this isn't normal. Uh, they know that this is preventable. You know, these are not um, acts of nature, these, these horrific shootings. They are acts of cowardice by our lawmakers who have not had the courage to stand up to the gun lobby. And I'm grateful that um, I, I think they, they see gun violence much differently than my generations and the generations before in that they aren't going to allow it to continue to happen. I'm Heather Knight, and I'll be right back with Shannon Watts. I'm back with Shannon Watts. What's it like to be so hated by the National Rifle Association? <laughs> uh, I wear it as a badge of honor. <laughs> every time they write about me, every time they tweet about me or post about me on Instagram uh, and send threats of, of death and sexual violence my way for days on end, uh, it's just a reminder that, that, that we're winning. You know, we, when we started Moms to Man Action, I, I started it almost eight years ago. It'll be eight years this December, the day after the Sandy Hook tragedy. And we were very much the David to the NRA's Goliath. Um, and now flash forward almost eight years, you know, we, we outspent and outmaneuvered them in 2018. We beat them in their own backyard in 2019 in Virginia by flipping both chambers of the state legislature already. Governor Northam has signed new, seven new gun safety bills. Wow. So I get why they're afraid of me and our volunteers. Uh, I think we were their worst nightmare and, and it has come true. 
Do you think their reputation is starting to change? Is the average American starting oh, to yeah. think differently of the NRA? Yes. When you look at polling, they are they are underwater. Um, they've absolutely flipped in terms of how the public sees them. Um, so they they are um, way out of the mainstream. They are considered extremists. The leadership. Uh, I'm not talking about NRA members. Seventy four percent of whom support things like a, a background check on every gun sale. It's really the leadership that has, has become so radicalized. And they're not only struggling reputationally, they're struggling financially. Uh, we know the NRA has spent already over $100 million in legal fees um, because uh, they're being investigated on so many different fronts. And the, the gun manufacturers themselves are underwater financially because there's no boogeyman in the White House to make people afraid every time there's a tragedy that they need to buy guns. Um, and so, you know, gun sales and accessory sales are, are way below where they used to be. And we go into 2020 stronger than we've ever been, and the NRA is weaker than they've ever been. That's interesting that people were more likely to buy guns when Obama was president than Trump. Oh, one of the biggest spikes in gun sales was after the Sandy Hook school shooting tragedy. Uh, and for eight years, you know, the NRA used that to, to juice gun sales. Their own annual budget went up over $100 million. And I, I think that they are shocked that not only have gun sales suffered, but they haven't passed a single piece of their priority legislation. And they had a Republican president and Congress for two years. And we were able to shut down um, every time they tried to, to pass a piece of their legislation. So we've gotten good at defense at a federal level, and, and I'm ready to play offense. There's been a string of disturbing online videos recently of African-American people being shot and killed, included Ahmaud Arbery while out jogging in Georgia. And I was wondering if you can speak to the link between Moms Demand Action and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I mean, you cannot talk about gun violence in this country without talking about systemic racism. Um, there are so many communities that are purposely starved of the resources they need uh, in order to be safe and in order to be protected. And so, you know, our organization um, is working on this on a couple of different fronts. One is that we partner with community organizations all across the country um, that specialize in violence interruption. So for example, I live near Oakland and there's a group there called Youth Alive and they train teens to go into their high schools and interrupt gun violence before it begins. Um, we helped secure over $30 million through the state budget for that program and uh, for, for all of the programs in the state, not just Youth Alive. And Governor Newsom has already indicated that he will refund what's called CalVIP again this year. We work for that kind of funding all over the country. Um, we also give away grants. We give away millions of dollars of grants ourselves every single year to these kinds of programs. And, you know, we are supportive of legislation that would de-escalate um, these types of, of police situations. Uh, there was um, a really innovative piece of legislation that was passed a little over a year ago, maybe two years in California, and we're waiting to see what the data shows us, but it hires the threshold that police can use to shoot and kill. So the goal is to de-escalate these kinds of situations. And, and if that is successful, then we can extrapolate it and, and apply it to other states. Well, you've survived the serious questions and all guests on Fifth and Mission have to undergo our lightning round. So okay. I, <laughs> I know that you are pretty new to the Bay Area. Um, so some of these might be a little bit hard. How long have you been living in the East Bay now? A year, almost a year, okay. July. Okay. Where is your favorite place in the Bay Area to get a burrito? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> I traveled so much before the coronavirus and now I'm <laughs> now not allowed to, to go anywhere. <laughs> Um, but I just, I, I think this is a chain, but is it 360 degree burritos or something oh, like that? I haven't tried that That one. was actually pretty decent. Do you have a favorite movie filmed in the Bay Area? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a movie that was filmed in the Bay Area. Um, uh, Was it The Last Man in San Francisco? Yeah. Is that what it was called? Last I love that man. movie. Last, Last Black, man. Black Man in San Francisco was an excellent movie. It was excellent. Where's your favorite place to get a stiff drink? Back when bars were open, if you can think back that long ago. Oh, um, I think any hotel lobby, and we've been <laughs> to a few here in, in uh, the East Bay, but I, I miss just going to a bar in a hotel and, and people watching and yeah. being able to sort of luxuriously enjoy your cocktail. <laughs> well, we should do that together sometime when we're alive. I would yeah. love it. <laughs> what was your first concert? Oh my gosh. My first concert was, I'm pretty sure it was Def Leppard. Nice. We just had Depeche <laughs> Mode from the last guest, so that's a good oh, <laughs> compliment. Same, same decade, different yes. genre. Uh, what was the last book you read? Um, I'm reading a book right now. I'm almost done. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller. Mm. And I love um, books about science, but also they're memoirish. And this reminds me so much of uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Uh-huh. And I'm just, I, I cannot highly enough recommend uh, why fish don't exist. I'm curious to know why fish don't exist. Just the title <laughs> alone is intriguing. You'll have to find out. Okay. <laughs> if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the way gun issue, the gun control issue works in America, what would it be? You know, the NRA is, is the wealthiest, most powerful special interest that ever existed. And I, I know through democracy, I've experienced it myself that you can topple these special interests and you can take back uh, the laws and the policies and the culture, but it can't come fast enough. And, and it only happens when every American gets off the sidelines and decides to make this their voting priority. We're seeing that shift. Um, I think that, that the vocal minority is now far outvoted and, and outshouted by what was for too long a silent majority. Uh, but I, I want every American to go into the polls with gun violence on their mind, M meaning they need to vote for a gun sense candidate. What are you most looking forward to about the end of shelter in place? What will you do first that you're not allowed to do now? I already know this answer. I, I want to just go to stores and browse, even right. if I'm wearing a mask and gloves and so is everybody else. I mean, you forget what it's like to be able to go outside and, you know, sip a Starbucks while you're, you're looking at clothes. And mm -hmm. it sounds very indulgent, uh, but at the same time, it's something I miss. Yeah. The curbside thing doesn't really cut it. <laughs> I can do that online. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last question. What is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Two things. Getting outside and exercising mm -hmm. every single day if I can, unless it's raining, and taking a bath at night. Mm, nice. Uh, to me, that's, you know, people talk about self-care and how they unwind and, and that's it for me. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really admire yeah. the work that you do and I'm happy oh, you, you joined me. Thank you. I'm proud to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Shannon Watts for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.